From Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Meltem, you know what really grinds my gears? Tell me, Jill. We give banks our cash and get basically nothing in exchange. Talk about opportunity cost of capital. You know, it makes me sad every time I look at my bank account. Celsius Network is on a mission to change that. With their super easy mobile app, you can actually earn passive income up to 7% per year in a safe and secure way. Interest is paid out every week and there are no fees or penalties ever. If you head over to Celsius and tell them we sent you, they'll give you $10 bonus in Bitcoin after your first deposit greater than $500. Use code GEARS when signing up or go to celsius.network slash GEARS for more information. Time to give a shout out to one of our sponsors. Coindesk, the number one media outlet for all things blockchain and crypto is hosting Consensus, its annual event in New York City. Tickets are on sale now at www.consensus2019.com and you can save $300 if you use the promo code GEARS300. In the year 1792, in the wake of a financial panic, a group of stockbrokers and speculators came together to determine how they might avoid that sort of volatility in the future. Not unlike the structural reform that financial markets have undergone in the last decade in the wake of the 2008 crisis, the agreements that these market participants made in 1792 would go on to reshape how they conducted business and even how we conduct business today. These stockbrokers assembled in the spring of that year to discuss how to prevent such a collapse from happening again. And they got together on a hot, sunny day in lower Manhattan under the shade of a buttonwood tree. What they devised became known as the Buttonwood Agreement. They wrote, We, the subscribers, brokers for the purchase and sale of the public stock, do hereby solemnly promise and pledge ourselves to each other that we will not buy or sell from this day for any person whatsoever any kind of public stock at a less rate than one quarter percent commission on the specie value and that we will give preference to each other in our negotiations." Call this what you will, it might seem a little bit like collusion, it might seem like a cabal, but with that agreement, the New York Stock Exchange was born. Now, those 24 brokers who devised the Buttonwood Agreement, they were setting standards that would go on to shape market infrastructure and determine who exactly could participate in those markets. They were making important trade-offs in their decisions, and the consequences of this would continue to morph and develop over time. 
And of course, we have come a long way. Markets have evolved beyond those 24 brokers who in 1792 found it convenient to gather under the shade of a tree. But the standards we have today don't look so radically different from what was up for discussion under that buttonwood tree. As we look at what's happening in markets today, the questions remain. Who should be able to participate in these markets? How should trades get executed? And what are the trade-offs we make with each of these decisions? All right. So we're going to get into all of this and how it works today, how it works, how it's worked in the past on Wall Street, and also how it's starting to shape up in in the future, Jill, the future of markets. I feel like this is a topic we keep coming back to. I know. But we also keep coming back to the history of markets. And before we dive in to the future, the crypto-based future, the decentralized future, if you will, mm-hmm. let's stay in the past for a second. So once upon a time, long before even 1792, all trading happened person to person, done by voice, right? Every well, it was trade, really it was done by handshake, right? You done operated, by handshake. yeah. It was reputation, exactly, between two gentlemen sitting across the bar from each other. Unfortunately, no gentlewomen. <laughs> <laughs> Alas, no. Things might look a bit different if that hadn't been the case. But so the point is, though, that every trade was done usually in person. Again, direct peer-to-peer in the most fundamental sense. Every trade was also a totally bespoke negotiation, right? There were no standards. There was no predetermined venue where this happened. These trades were all taking place over the counter. And that's an important phrase to remember Mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Do you, Jill, do you want to just specify? I feel like people are always confused by the idea of OTC or over-the-counter. Yeah, so OTC or over the counter is sort of the ultimate decentralized marketplace. Again, <laughs> insofar as there is no venue, like quite literally decentralized, not in the sort of technology hand wavy crypto sense. Mm-hmm. So there are many markets that actually still operate this way, right? So bond trading, and remember, bond markets are actually even bigger than the stock market. Bond trading all takes place over phone lines and over Bloomberg chats and sometimes even over instant messenger. I remember Mm. back in the day seeing like AIM chats even still being used in MSN. Yeah, Um, BBM, BlackBerry Messenger. That was my favorite venue. Oh, yeah, baby. Bring it back. Bring it (laughs) all back. Girl of the mid to late 2000s, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. It was the best. But so, okay, one of the interesting things, though, about bond trading is, yes, it takes place OTC. Now, why hasn't an exchange cropped up around bond trading? Why isn't there a sort of centralized venue? So it turns out that there are actually plenty of attempts to bring bond trading onto an electronic platform or an exchange, just like we have for the stock market. But actually, all of these attempts have struggled. I remember as one of the junior kids on the trading desk, it was always my sort of unhappy business to take the meetings with the entrepreneurs who would come by the Goldman trading desk and say, hey, we've built this new bit of technology and it's going to totally revolutionize your business. And you're going to put all your bonds on this trading platform. And oh, by the way, actually, we're not even going to need you, the OTC traders anymore. So there we get into one of the most interesting things as we think about financial market infrastructure is just what are the incentives of people 
already in the market in terms of adopting new technology and infrastructure. And I can tell you, as a trader, it was not in my interest to adopt an ex- a piece of exchange technology. But there are also <laughs> other reasons why these things haven't taken off. So bonds, bonds are a lot less standardized mm. than stocks, right? They're more bespoke in nature. So they don't really lend themselves to having set standards and venues. So just a few of the examples of where OTC trading still exists exists and And why it's not on exchange. I think a lot of OTC trading as well, um, it's an inside market, right? And when I Mm -hmm. say inside market, that has very specific connotations. An inside market is where the buyers and sellers are fairly well known. And a lot of times inside markets are highly speculative markets. So Jill, I know in prior episodes, you've spoken a lot about the bonds you used to trade. You weren't trading with people very unlike yourself. You were trading with people who were very similar to you. They were trading these bonds with the objective of making money, right? It was a proprietary trading desk where you traded these bonds in an attempt to find information asymmetries or mispricings in the market that would allow you to make money. And there are a lot of markets like this. Um, The carbon certificates that I used to trade, they were initially sold in order to help energy producers offset their carbon production. But guess who bought them in the secondary market? Brokers like myself were buying them over the counter, over the phone, in an attempt to take advantage of a pricing mismatch and a supply-demand mismatch. And so what's interesting to note is so many crypto markets today, which I know we're going to get into later, are still very much inside markets where the buyers and sellers, very importantly, they're looking at the same data sets. They're looking at the same information. They share the same psychology. And so there is this interesting phenomenon in markets around information theory when you have a lot of people who are similar and share similar objectives. They know the same people. They're trading with the same brokers. So there is a natural resistance to um, standardization and electronic venues for trade execution because you're trying to make profit. Right, So you're trying to minimize information leakage, and you can only do that in a tightly controlled inside market. That's right. You actually don't want transparency if you're one of the insiders. It's to your benefit that there is no public exchange, that there is no tape, the ticker tape, the public record of where the last trades occurred. You don't want that at all. So let's talk a little bit about these issues that come along with these over-the-counter markets. So as Jill and I have just talked about, they're really not that efficient. And it is that lack of efficiency that allows people to take advantage of these markets and make money in these markets. Price discovery is really hard. Without getting a quote from someone, how do you know what a fair price is? Without a tape, how do you know what the last buy or sell was executed at? you really don't know, right? No one's printing or logging these trades in a public venue. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to buy a certain bond or a certain asset, you're going to get prices that are all over the map. Your broker, by the way, may also have an incentive to mislead you. So if your broker has a position in these bonds, they might try to convince you that the price is higher than it really is so they can sell them at a better price and mark their position more favorably earn more commission, et cetera. This is and where also- trading starts to become a bit of a poker game, right, Nelson? <laughs> totally. And like that's, that's in large part the fun of trading. This is why if you talk to traders, they're almost like addicted to their jobs very frequently, right? Because there is this sort of competitive game aspect to it. And a part of that game, just like in poker, is about deception, 
Uh, absolutely. And I think you actually find that a lot of traders enjoy gambling. <laughs> what well, I like to say sure. is a lot of a lot of people who trade, right? You're addicted to the dopamine hits mm-hmm. of um the bet, right? Of the game because it is a game. And here's another interesting scenario that I know we're going to get into later is the issue of front running. So mm-hmm. here's what might happen. You're a broker, right? You're trading a particular set of bonds and your client calls you. Your client calls you up and they want to make a trade and they say, hey, I'm trying to build up a position in IBM bonds, corporate bonds, right? And IBM's a good company, so it's probably A-rated. I haven't looked at IBM's credit rating, but they're probably highly rated. And this client's like, I want to build a big position, so it's going to take them some time. So if you as the broker know this, what you could do if you were not very scrupulous and you did not follow the SEC's rules or FINRA's rules around ethics, (laughs) what you could do is front run your client, go out into the market, buy IBM bonds in size for yourself first, and then log your trade second, therefore pushing the market price higher. This means that the client ends up paying more and the broker is then able after the client's bid is executed to sell their bonds at this new higher price. Now, if you've ever taken the series exams or dealt with broker-dealer businesses, you know this is strictly prohibited. This practice is called Not cool, bro. Not cool. Not, Not cool at all. And you know what? Here's the other interesting thing about OTC markets and inside markets that are really closely traded. You don't want to be that person because once people find out you're doing this, you will never do business again. 100%. It's a very reputation-based system. And it's that incentive, of course, along with regulation, that generally prevents this from happening very much. But there certainly are instances where this occurs on Wall Street. Well, it happens all the time. And the issue is, right, on an OTC market, because the tape is so inconsistent, and I think actually for OTC markets, you only have to record uh, trades every 15 minutes, unlike more uh, regular standardized venues like the NICE or the NASDAQ, where you have to record a trade within 10 seconds, right? There's a long period of lag. Um, and so a lot can happen in that, that time frame. And this, again, goes back to the lack of data, this information asymmetry, and the lack of a venue and a standardized sort of settlement process. Yeah. The the last thing I want to emphasize here on OTC trading and this broker front-running issue is you as the customer, you don't really have a choice, right? Like you have to trust some third-party intermediary, i.e. your broker, in order to facilitate that trade. Because your other option is going out into the market and basically showing your poker hand, saying to the market like, hey, I'm a big buyer of IBM bonds. Guess what? everyone in the market is then going to front run you because there's not that sort of trusted, they're not your broker, they're your competitors. And so you have to trust your broker. There's no real way around this. There's no, you know, I can imagine the crypto folks listening to this being like, well, you could create like a zero knowledge, you know, smart contract that blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, that's cool. But that, that doesn't, that's not how this works today. You've got to trust someone. <laughs> well, the problem is, so this this is the fundamental problem in markets, right? 
you can try to def design the most airtight system, but there is always going to be a certain amount of leakage. And in fact, as a trader, as someone who's looking for price arbitrage opportunities, arbitrage being the idea of buy low, sell high, you're going to naturally be attracted to venues and markets that have natural inefficiencies that can be exploited. That is literally verbatim the job of a prop trader or a proprietary trader who's trading the assets of the firm with the objective of making money. That's your That's job. Right. That's right. <laughs> so, okay. There are all kinds of issues with OTC trading, but what this episode is about is the venues that most trading, not most trading, but certainly stock trading and certain other types of assets have assembled into. So let's dive into what happens on exchanges. Let's do it. And I think this is really the evolution from that peer-to-peer -peer voice negotiation-driven trading to electronic trading. And this sort of marks the broader theme that's happened on Wall Street over the last 60 years, which is really digitization, right? That's right. So do you want to kick it off, Jill? Let's kick it off. So exchanges. So stocks have always been a little bit different. Since the first company shares were issued back in the 1600s, stocks have generally traded in set venues in a more centralized manner, if you will, than OTC trading. Now, in the early days, this venue was a pit. From the 1600s until roughly the 1980s, most stock trading and speculation happened through a process called open outcry. So this is the trading floor that you think of with everyone yelling numbers and waving madly with different hand signals and shouting, sell, I said buy, no, buy, sell. If you've seen the classic Eddie Murphy movie, Trading Places, and I highly recommend it, then you know what we're talking about here. <laughs> and trading pits were, in fact, uh, dark and depressing like pits tend to be. And in places in the world where they still exist, they are an incredible spectacle of human coordination. You'll see men and women yelling, scribbling furiously on yellow pads. Um, when I worked on a desk, it was not a pit, but we had multiple phones. You know, you'd see people with one phone on each ear texting away on their black Blackberry. Um, people wear funny jackets and they have bright stripes kind of denoting which broker they represent. And in the midst of all of this madness, trades are getting done. But pits um, are a thing of the past. I think there's one pit that you can still see on Wall Street. It's yeah, the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. But now if you go to the floor, most of the trading you see is done electronically. And really, um, the, the New York Stock Exchange pit is more of you know a thing they, they show you when they trot out the executives or when the school trips come by. They'll have people almost like um, actors, right? You know how they have those Civil War reenactment yeah. actors? <laughs> oh, <laughs> brutal. <laughs> There's some traders out there who are reenacting the glory days of, of the Well, pit. they are still doing some trades, but as you say, the vast majority is happening electronically and not, not in the pit. But yeah. if you turn on CNBC as well, I love this guy, Rick Santelli. He's always talking about the bond market and getting way overexcited. And he's always coming to you live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So that's another way to get up close and personal with it if you're curious. I love it. Um, but there's a reason that the pit doesn't exist anymore. And so there was this company in the 1960s that came along called Instanet. And you've probably heard of Instanet if you've heard of, you know, the, the large firms on Wall Street. And this firm, for the first time, created something called an electronic 
order book. So an order book, as we've talked about in prior episodes, is where buys and sells and their size get listed. And this order book is what fuels most exchanges because when you go onto an exchange, really all it is is a venue where people can enter here's the price I want to pay and here's how much I want to buy. And likewise, on the sell side, here's how much I want to sell and here's the price I'm willing to accept. And what this does is it creates an electronic platform to match via the form of a matching engine, these buyers and sellers, and then to execute trades when there's a match between what someone's willing to pay and what someone's willing to accept. So Instanet, for the first time, um, offered this service. And it started out as a a small venue that was open only to large institutions that could bear this risk. They only offered trading of pink sheet listings or listings that were typically traded over the counter, um, tended to be lower in quality, have less data, stuff that have historically been traded over the phone. And their volumes grew slowly. But... It started to gain real traction. The benefits of having this electronic venue, electronic matching, and electronic trading and execution started to have real benefits for firms. It increased transparency, heightened accuracy, and the system really took off. That's right. And Instanet was the first to do this. And I really want to emphasize here that it was not an overnight success. As we'll see in example after example, anytime there's a change of infrastructure when it comes to trading venues, when it comes to how this is getting done, how markets are moving, it takes a while to catch on. And there are a few reasons for that. Again, we'll dive more into it later, but it comes back often to the incentives of the players in the game. And then also to just the the sort of time lag that it takes for the new market participants, for the old market participants rather, to understand the possible benefits of the new technology, which in this case was all around transparency, faster, better execution. Um, and, and now, of course, today, the vast, vast majority of stock trading, as we mentioned, happens electronically, thanks in part to Instanet. Yep. And um, what's interesting also to note is, to your point, Jill, typically digitization of a particular asset class will happen sort of asset class by asset class. Mm -hmm. So it started with these pink sheets that Instanet sort of helped digitize, right? So instead of open outcry and paper trading where people are shouting at each other, coordinating, started happening in electronic venues. What's really interesting, so the industry I was in, commodities, really didn't get digitized until the late 70s and early 80s, right? Oil used to be traded primarily over the counter in the pits, um, and then slowly over time it became digitized. Similarly, a lot of private markets assets, so uh, private equity, um, venture capital, things like that, are still not digitized yet. And so a lot of the innovation we talk about with blockchain-based assets, in large part, is a continuing part of this broad broader narrative arc that is really focused on the digitization of market venues, trading venues, um, creating market depth, creating market liquidity in these assets through the use of technology in the form of digitization to create more efficient, more structured markets. And so I think that's an important note. There isn't like some magic that suddenly happens in a market that makes it (laughs) digitized. It's typically part of a very long sort of arc 
of time. I five thought years, that Michael Bloomberg years. just showed up with a Bloomberg terminal and was like, <laughs> all right, this is what we're doing now, guys. No, no, no. You need Baz Manor's uh, blockchain terminal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, terrible. So today, it's important to note, um, the majority of stock trading does happen electronically, but if you're moving in size, um, you're typically not going to trade in the market. And so there's still a lot of assets that aren't traded electronically yet, typically because they're more esoteric, they're difficult to standardize. And there are also some assets or some trades, as we've talked about, that people don't want to do electronically. They don't want to do it in a known venue. So let's talk about this. Yeah. So, you know, you talked a bit about here how what asset it is you're trading that will affect the infrastructure you use. But your choice of infrastructure and trading venue and how you're going about executing the trade, it depends also on who you are and what you're trying to do. So like, if you're a day trader, if you're a retail investor with a Charles Schwab account and you're trying to execute a trade, how does that happen? Usually you'll, again, just go into your Charles Schwab account and your broker will feed your trade, which is likely tiny in the grand scheme of things, into a market order that gets routed into an exchange's order book. Now, that's totally fine. But as you say, if you're a big player and you're looking to move what we in the market call size, big size, then it might get a lot more complicated how you want to go about this trade. If you're a hedge fund manager and you send a market order to an exchange's order book to try and sell a big chunk of a not-so-liquid stock, say like Garmin stock, then you're likely to spook the market and move it lower before you've even managed to sell a single share. Absolutely. And I think, again, the important thing here is um, there are a lot of different types of traders, a lot of different types of people who are entering the market. So for most retail investors, whether they're trading stocks or crypto, going to an exchange an electronic venue and entering their buy or their sell order, um, totally fine, right? Most markets are going to have no impact. Your trade gets ex- executed, no problem. And you're not really trading in such a size that it starts to impact the market. And a retail investor, you know, they're not trying to corner the market for Puerto Rican bonds, <laughs> for example. <laughs> but once you start talking about larger institutions who have really specific objectives or larger institutions who are trying to do do something without their competition noticing, there's a lot of value in privacy. There's a lot of value in obfuscating your moves and hiding your tracks. And that discretion, that discretion is exactly why something called a dark pool was created. The dark pool, dun, dun, dun. So ominous. I feel like whenever people talk about dark pools, they get so um, like James Bond, you know, we're doing really esoteric stuff. And I'm like, it's so basic. Whoever comes up with that name, honestly, like needs to take a lesson in branding because (laughs) unless, I mean, it might might be the sort of like anti-big bankers. I don't actually know the history of it who came up with the phrase, but it sounds very ominous. But High level, I mean, dark pools were developed in order to provide a forum for these types of big trades to get done amongst big traders without spooking the market. Absolutely. And again, a lot of this, um, for people who are interested, there's some great books you can read about information theory and sort of this idea of signal versus noise. It's a phrase that comes up often, but there are a lot of people on Wall Street and you know in other markets who spend a lot of time, all they do is look at data, right? 
all they do is look at data of what firms are trading, where trades are happening, size of trades, direction, to try to figure out what some of the larger players in the market are doing and to bet against it. Exactly. So data is really important. But let's talk about how dark pools work. And I love this analogy. I think it's perfect. So if you are listening to this, you've probably heard of Tinder and maybe you've even used Tinder yourself. So if you've used Tinder, you will get how a dark pool works. So Tinder, dating app, you log in, you get your little screen and you're presented with a constant stream of options. If you're interested in the person presented to you, you can express this by swiping right. But here's the most important part. You don't know ahead of time if someone has or has not swiped right on you already. But when there is a match, though, when two people both swipe right on each other, Tinder then notifies both sides and presents to them, hey, you've made a match. A dark pool is not dissimilar. (laughs) It's like Tinder, but for traders, (laughs) which is so sad. (laughs) So sad. But here's how it works. So in a dark pool, I can enter my interest in selling a big chunk of equity. Say, for example, these IBM bonds we're talking about. So that's a chunk of debt, sorry. So say I want to sell this giant chunk of IBM debt. And I don't want to sell it on the public market because if I do that, I might move the market against me, move it lower because all of my competition out there that's trading sees my sees my sell and starts to price lower and lower to try to screw me. This happens all the time. If you've read the book Long-Term Capital Management, this is basically what happened to John Merriweather and his band of quants. <laughs> so if someone else comes in to buy these IBM bonds at the price I want to sell, my sell order will fill their buy. But critically, they're not going to know who's on the other side of the trade. And until we match up, they're not going to know how big my order is. So it's a great way to create anonymity and to reduce the amount of information flow in the market because you don't get presented with the information of your bid hitting until the point of execution. Right. And I just want to clarify. So like this is assuming that your alternative is a public exchange venue. So this probably doesn't actually happen with bonds, but this happens all the time with equity, right? Where if you show your poker hand to the market, then you're going to have a lot of people out there getting in front of that trade. So a dark pool allows you to get around this problem. Just like on Tinder, you don't know if that person is just trying to take you home for the night or trying to marry you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Terrible, Jill. (laughs) Terrible. But so, okay, dark pools, despite their ominous sounding names, they do have perks, right? They increase liquidity. They make it easier for big buyers and sellers to trade very seamlessly. But of course, they do also have their drawbacks. Everything has trade-offs. And so there are all kinds of ways that market participants take advantage of dark pools, just like, I'm guessing, participants on Tinder take advantage of that system. Well, I think the only game on Tinder for most people who are on it is they just swipe right on everyone. They're like, I want all, I want to know every participant in the market right now. Well, so that's a little bit actually like something that people do with dark pools yeah. that traders do with dark pools called pinging. So one way that dark pools get taken advantage of is through this process by which it's usually a high-frequency trader sends a small order or usually multiple small orders through to a dark pool in order to uncover a big block trade. 
This high frequency trader can then use the information that there's a big block trade there to make profitable trades ahead of that big trade getting filled. It's a little bit like playing a big game of Battleship. Do you remember Battleship, Meltem? Yes, I loved Battleship. So good. But so that's the same idea. You keep pinging their your opponent's board and then mm-hmm. sooner or later you can tell like okay, they have like, you know, the eight man like you know, aircraft carrier there and <laughs> and you can sort of start to see what the makeup of, of the board is, even though you're in the dark on it. Yep. And there's another type of uh, way that people take advantage of dark pools. It's called latency arbitrage. So one word you may hear when people talk about electronic trading latency, it means time lag, right? And so what latency arbitrage does is it's an attempt to take advantage of the lag time that it takes to update buy and sell prices in a dark pool relative to where the stock is trading on the regular transparent electronic trading venue. And high-frequency traders, especially high-frequency trading firms, will use specialized hardware and literally physical proximity to public exchange infrastructure to try to arbitrage dark pool prices using updated transparent market pricing. And there's actually a spot in New Jersey, in the state of New Jersey, where the data centers for most public exchanges are located Mm. that people will try to co-locate their own execution software with. Because even though data typically moves really quickly. If you have fiber, it moves at the speed of light. There is advantage in being able to get your data there a little quick, more quickly than your counterparty or other people in the market. And um, that is one example of how markets have fundamentally evolved to adapt to the introduction of new technology. So the first step is sort of digitization. And then the second step, really what we're talking about here is optimization. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Digitization, then optimization. There's a there's a movie that just came out. I actually haven't seen it yet called Hummingbird that's all about this of getting the most direct link from your Chicago trading oh firm to that data center in New Jersey. Of course there is. Yeah. Of course there is. Here's So here's the funny thing though. Like in crypto markets, people like to talk about the evolution of crypto markets. None of these things exist. Like oh, Bitcoin just trading started. <laughs> oh, and it's what's so funny to me is like Bitcoin, which is the most liquid of all crypto markets, is a terribly unsophisticated market. Crypto generally, it's like a archaic market. It's like you're back in the 1970s, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> not I, even. It's, yeah, it's like you're back in 1792, just creating a New York Stock Exchange. But so- well, I think some people did meet under a tree. I, I think they met at a beach, though, a bunch of traders, and they basically had their own version of the button. Oh my god. <laughs> But let's talk about our favorite, Michael Lewis. Do you want to talk about Michael Lewis for a moment? Yeah, Jill? so I know Hummingbird, really that grind. movie I mentioned. It's, it it's, grinds your gears. It does. Hummingbird, that movie I mentioned, that's not the only uh, media venue that has featured this phenomenon. If you're familiar with Michael Lewis, you might have read Liar's Poker, one of his other books. Um, but the one that I'm talking about here is Flash Boys. So if you've read Michael Lewis, you'll know that high-frequency trading gets a really bad rap. In particular, they get a bad rap for the sort of behaviors that we were just talking about, these types of arbitrage trades that seek to take advantage of their superior technology. These trades are often considered hostile by other market participants, and let's be real, probably for good reason. A lot of people would call these types of games front-running. Now, whether or not they're actual front-running is sort of up for debate, I would would argue, because 
they're taking advantage of an information asymmetry, but all of that information is technically public. It's available. It's just not available to all if they don't have the relevant expertise or technology to go in and find it. But so high-frequency traders, they take advantage of these information asymmetries to move markets, some would say artificially, away from what a big pension fund or mutual fund or hedge fund is trying to do. And so there's this sort of reputation around them and around dark pools and around all sorts of other things of like, these are the bad guys of the markets. They're the ones screwing over retail investors and mom and pop and so on. But I'm not sure that that's totally fair because as we'll talk about in a second, Mm -hmm. they increase liquidity of the overall market, which benefits everyone still. I think the other thing people have to recognize, um, just like there are people who make their living, um, you know, buying and selling, importing and exporting things that are scarce in one market, but abundant in another market. That's literally how the Silk Road, like the actual trading route, that's what people did, right? They would go to a region of the world and they would find exotic things that didn't exist in the places they were from. And a lot of the wealth in our world was created doing exactly this. It's called arbitrage, right? It's finding something and taking it somewhere else and selling it for more than you paid for it. That's the fundamentals of how commerce works. I love that. It, it sounds like it just sounds like the sort of dismissive comment that's sort of a perfect catch-all. Um, it's called arbitrage. <laughs> but but this is this is what humanity has been built on. This is what the economy has been built on, the practice of buying and selling. And the thing that people don't understand about capital markets, um, trading, trading firms, people who do this for a living, it is their job to find inefficiencies, whether those are information inefficiencies, whether you know those are technology inefficiencies, whether those are timing inefficiencies, whether those are structural inefficiencies. This is what you do for a living, right? Totally. And just and and so I think it's it's kind of missing the point um, because just like anything else, this is a specialty. This is a learned skill set. And um, one of the interesting things that also happened in Flash Boys, there was a group of people who called bullshit on these high frequency traders, and they set up their own exchange that was designed specifically to prevent this type of predatory sort of time lag trading. Um, and this company, as some of you may know, was called IEX. They used what was called a speed bump, quote unquote, that was designed to try to level the playing field amongst all of these players that were trying to take advantage of this timing mismatch because they had better or worse infrastructure. And this speed bump is so funny to me. I, I just love the way that all of these different ideas come together. It takes form in the in this 38 mile long coil of fiber optic cable that any order hitting the exchange has to traverse through to access the exchange. And so, so I think that's really funny that you actually end up laying a little bit of extra wire for data to travel through to try to get everyone on the same speed. Yeah, it's it's sort of beautifully ironic, right, that you have all of these different trading firms trying to set up the most direct line to this data center in New Jersey. And then mm-hmm. here come the IEX guys and they're like, no, screw it. We're going to set up a whole new exchange and actually we're going to lay extra cable that everyone has to traverse in order to do a trade. And, uh, you know, I have to say as well, major props to them. 
because instead of just calling for increased regulation and oversight of what these high frequency traders are doing, instead of just writing op-eds and playing the bully pulpit, they actually went out and yep. built something. They built well, an and they used and they use the laws of the universe, right? So this is what I always like to oh, say. You love this, Melton. You love this. I know. I'm going to segue us into the crypto theme. Look, um, there are three fundamental laws about the universe, right? And um, the universe has rules, right? Physical material, um, physical data, everything in the world travels according to a set of rules, right? And these rules describe not only how things um, exist, but also how these things interact. And so what I think is so interesting is a lot of times when people are just trying to describe a crypto idea to me, what they're describing is an idea that attempts to defy the laws of the universe, right? <laughs> it attempts totally. to defy the laws of market. It attempts to defy the laws of gravity. And in fact, alchemy, right? Or the idea of taking base metals and turning them into gold, which was a far more valuable, far rarer metal, has been a pursuit of, um, you know, scientists and philosophers for millennia since the dawn of human time. It's something people have tried to do. We touched on it a few weeks ago with our comments around Voltaire's uh, Candide, this piece of satire. And so what I think people sometimes forget is everything at the end of the day, is tied back to the physical world. And there are certain things that are and are not possible. Markets are not these magical sentient beings. Um, traders are not these magical individuals who have superpowers. This is all about knowing the rules of the game, knowing the laws of the universe, and playing within those rules. This is not rocket science. And just because someone is smarter than you, more aggressive than you, and willing to lay a little bit more cable than you, it doesn't mean that you should regulate them out of the market. And so I think this, again, when we look at crypto, you know, there is this interesting point in the industry's development that we're at where market infrastructure in crypto is notoriously underdeveloped. I have so many friends who look at the crypto market and they love it because it's such an easy market to trade in. Because it's so unsophisticated. It's so inefficient. The venues are so archaic. And um, what I think is really interesting is as we look at these options ahead of us for how crypto market infrastructure will develop, it's going to have fundamental implications on what the future of this market looks like, who gets to participate in it, and what it means for the role of data, information, and the rules of the game as it's going to get played. It's really fun. Yeah. So infrastructure choices matter a lot in determining how a market functions, who gets to participate in it, et cetera. But there are always trade-offs in terms of any infrastructure or market standard choice that you make, whether you're trading OTC or you're risking and you're risking your broker front-running you or leakage of your position strategy, again, talking about showing your poker hand, or whether you're trading on electronic exchange in a dark pool where you can be subject to these other arbitrages like pinging and latency. Traders are always going to find ways to play games and take advantage of these opportunities that the market presents. Technology will also always find ways to evolve around this. Now, I've been really excited about decentralized exchanges and this whole DeFi movement for a while. I know that we sometimes sound skeptical of it on this show, but I would actually argue that we're getting to see the next evolution of trading technology and market infrastructure play out now in the crypto space. And with the emergence of decentralized exchanges, we're seeing new ways of trading emerge that have never previously existed. Now, of course, these all come with their costs and their benefits. So 
crypto, let's dive in and discuss what these new ways actually are and what some of those trade-offs look like. You ready to talk about Dex, Meltem? Oh, we're finally here. After 19 episodes of successfully avoiding the topic of Dex, I think we have to talk about it. Uh, do you, Dex, baby. So I know you've been really excited about Dex, Jill. I know that I've laughed at you a bit about Dex because given how immature the regular market is, I feel like Dex is like 10 light years away. But why don't you tell us what a decentralized exchange or Dex is? is. And then we can dive a little bit into these features, functionalities, and the things we gain and the things we may possibly lose as we introduce new ways, new market structures, um, new concepts of thinking about how crypto assets are traded and exchanged. Let's do it. So, okay. Firstly, what is a decentralized exchange? Ah, Jill, help me, help me. What is it? So it was actually, it was Rick Dudley, who you should all follow on Twitter. He's very entertaining and insightful. He actually (laughs) pointed out to me that a decentralized exchange, those words, are actually an oxymoron. And I totally agree with this. An exchange is, by definition, a centralized venue where trading happens. Well, that's how people go there, right? It's a place where liquidity aggregates. Exactly. It's a place where buyers and sellers meet. (laughs) So how can a venue be decentralized? What are we actually talking about here? If we're to take the words literally, we'd probably end up with something that looks a lot like OTC trading, right? But when we say decentralized exchange, what it's come to mean, it's come to refer to the ability to execute and settle trades in a censorship-resistant manner without reliance on one single centralized third party. Much cypherpunk. Very wow. (laughs) Much wow. Um, But I think this is so cool, right? If we think about some of the challenges around trust, really what this comes down to is having a order book that is not managed by one entity, right? Right. And that that to me is is interesting. The primary thing that I think people tend to mean um, when they talk about decentralized exchange is actually two concepts. And I want to delineate what they are. And I know we have slightly different views or perhaps quite different views on these two things. Bring it on, Melton. Let's go. Let's fight, Jill. Um, okay. So the word- Tether doing, Melton? Tether's doing fine. Trading at a dollar, holding steady. The Bitfinex premium is coming down. So, you know, they're going to do billion dollar IEO, LEO, I don't know, whatever. Okay. Um, anyway, DEX. About Tether, DEX. Okay. So when we talk about an exchange being decentralized, there are two aspects of an exchange that are really important. The first one that Jill and I have talked about is the order book, right? So when people go onto an exchange venue, what they do is they indicate what action it is they want to take, buy or sell at what price and in what size, right? So these are kind of the three defining characteristics of an order book. And so to me, what's important about DEX is, is the order book decentralized? Is it a piece of open source software where you can actually audit the code, you know exactly how the matching engine works in the order book, and you can ensure that there is quote unquote fairness because instead of relying on a centralized entity or a company to be running the order book, you are relying on a piece of software. And so that's kind of one one concept. The second that I want to get to after we debate the order book question is custody. Who actually holds the assets that are going to be trade 
traded. This is hugely problematic. Um, we can get into that, but let's start by talking about the order book, which is when I enter what I want to do into the market, what happens with that information? How does the matching work, et cetera? So no, my- I just, I just want to slice this using slightly different terminology, but I, I agree with you that that slicing is correct. We've talked a lot about the three layers of a trade in past episodes So at the top layer, you have execution, which is the handshake, right? The trade is matched. Then you have the clearing process, which is the sort of exchange of information back and forth. Like, okay, the trade is actually done. We agree on all the details of it. And then you have settlement, which is the actual movement of assets. And And the important thing, sorry about the, the important thing about the clearing layer is this is where regulation comes in. This is where you do like all of your compliance checks and make sure the other person's kosher and that the source of funds, et cetera. But so what we're talking about though is the decentralization of the other two, right? Of execution at the order book level. Yes. And then custody potentially at the settlement level, right? But there's also custody during the clearing, right? Because if I'm a broker, so this is really important. If I'm a broker in the market today, right? And I'm trading an asset that's traded over the counter. um, As a broker, I need to have confidence that you, my client, when you tell me that you're selling something, that you actually have those assets. Because there's an interesting thing that happens from a liability perspective. If you tell me you want to sell a thousand shares of IBM, I go out and I find you a buyer of your shares at the price you want. We paper the trade, right? It gets cleared. And then we go to settle. If I don't have those shares in my custody or I don't have the other client's funds in my custody, I can't settle the trade. And actually, legally, you only have four days to produce those share certificates. You only have four days to get them to me before you need to pay me cash so that I can go into the open market and buy the trades and settle them. Because there's a legal liability that broker takes on. And so actually, at the clearing layer, custody is an important part of being able to prove that you're actually going to be able to settle the trade. It's like a weird thing, but you're kind of attesting to the fact that you have the assets or the cash being traded before you go to settle in my view. Okay. It's like an attestation. It's proof of yeah. your ability no, to I can settle. See that. I can see that. But so you wanted to talk about order book first, right? This yes. execution I wanna, layer. I want to talk about the order book. So I think one of the concerns that people have with crypto markets in general is how order books are managed, how matching happens, how trades are prioritized. This is something that's been problematic in legacy markets as well. Um, and one of the interesting things always, you know, there are tons of cases that are looked out at all the time. There was just a big CFTC case um, against a known trader in the crypto space, but focused on a commodities issue where there was some sort of like funkiness around how orders were settled and in what order. Um, And so to me, the order book is really important. And most DEXs actually don't have a decentralized order book. They rely on a centralized order book. Absolutely. Now, what what most DEXs, what some DEXs anyway, are doing in order to try and get around this order book issue, because the idea here that I think you're getting at is like, if you can shut down the order book, then there's nothing censorship resistant about you, right? Like you, it's, it's kind of a fallacy to claim that you are decentralized in all of these magical ways that a lot of crypto companies and crypto projects claim to be if you still have this central point of failure at the order book right. level. I think that there's, so there's two pieces to it. One is um, censorship resistance, right? Or the inability for the market venue to be shut down. I think the second component that's more important to me is um, fairness and transparency. Because if there's a centralized entity who controls the flow of information and the rule set around how things get matched, 
then there is um, the potential for manipulation. And a lot of what we talk about, um, or at least what I think about is when people talk about decentralization, is this concept of fairness, right, which is very esoteric. And so I think it's just very difficult um, when people talk about decentralized exchange, but then go on to describe to me how their order book's highly centralized. (laughs) I kind of take a pause and I scratch my head and I'm like, hmm, it's a little bit, as Rick said, it's a little bit of an oxymoron. It's a mis- no more. But so, so what, what some of what at least one of the models that exists around this is to create an underlying protocol, right? That is facilitating the clearing and settlement. And we'll get to the custody aspect in a more truly decentralized manner. And then allowing that infrastructure to be built upon by anyone who wants to spin up their own order book. And these entities have come to be called relayers. So this is what 0x does. Even if you look at uh, something like Augur, which is not a decentralized exchange, like anyone can build the UX and the sort of matching layer for Augur as well. And I would call mm-hmm. that a relayer too. And mm-hmm. so one one thing that I've always come back to whenever I think too hard about decentralization, which unfortunately is several times a day, is that creating a competitive marketplace is in itself one form of decentralization. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that you know any of these things have truly sort of decentralized order books in the way that we're talking about them, but I do just want to acknowledge that like creating a system of relayers that are competing for market share and so on, that is in a way decentralizing that layer, that execution layer. But even if you talk to these projects, I don't think any of the projects are pretending that they've decentralized the order book. I think that most of them are very real about the fact that actually you don't want trade execution to be living on the blockchain, for the order book to be living on the blockchain. There are major issues around fees and latency and all kinds of things that will come along with that. Right. I guess what I object to is I think most people, when they're talking about decentralized exchange, have no idea what it is they're actually talking about or what it is they're actually articulating. And I think, again, we've ground our gears on this topic, Jill, many times. But you know, there are a lot of people who I think don't have any capital markets background or experience not a bad thing, but when they That's then- why the show exists. <laughs> right. But when they come into the space and they're like, I'm building this and it's so much better. And I'm like, literally every problem you have described has been solved in legacy markets. And this, the solution is not decentralization. That literally has nothing to do with the problem you're trying to solve. Okay. It's so- the, it's the streets are wet, therefore it rains thing we talked about, right? The Mary Galman effect. Yeah. But so, okay, I'm going to push back on you here though, because, and this is going to be my segue to custody, to the settlement layer of this, because I actually think that DEXs are producing something novel and valuable in the form of what they bring to custody. So when I talk about decentralized exchanges, what I'm talking about is the ability to perform trades without relying on a single centralized third-party custodian. Now, why is this important? Well, especially in cryptocurrency, it turns out that cryptocurrency exchanges don't exactly have the best track record when it comes to custodying their customers' funds. You want to know why I'm so paranoid about Tether and Bitfinex, etc.? Look at Gox. Look at Quadriga. Look at everything in between. (laughs) 
Right. Well, and I think really what you're describing here is anytime you have sort of an aggregation point for coins, it creates risk, right? And really what you're talking about when you're talking about um, sort of decentralizing the custody layer is reducing risk. But when you do that, um, you still need a way to sort of enable and facilitate that exchange of assets, which is where the relay component becomes really important. But let's just quickly talk about um, custodial models. All right. Um, So custodial models, super fun topic. Um, In the crypto landscape, as Jill mentioned, custody has been nothing short of highly problematic. (laughs) Yeah, crypto grandma over here. Do you want to give us some of the history? Sure, crypto grandma um, calling calling for duty. So there are several exchanges that have been um, non custodial or somewhat non custodial. Abra, um, which is a company I'm very fond of, they rely on um, keeping control of funds in the hands of users, which is pretty cool. So Abra is this app. It's on your phone. You go on it. You can buy uh, Bitcoin, baskets of assets. They've actually tokenized um, or made the the Bitwise Hold 10 index into a uh, digital representation so you can buy and sell it in units. They've recently enabled stock trading as well through digitizing it as a blockchain-based representation. But what they do is when you sign into Abra, you actually use a PIN code, which is effectively your private key. And what's cool about that is even though Abra controls and manages the app and all the infrastructure behind it, they don't have the ability to touch your funds. And so that's a pretty innovative model in terms of how an exchange operates because most of the other platforms, whether it's Poloniex or Bitfinex or um, any of these platforms, they're fully custodial. Your coins have to be on the exchange. Another one that people may know is Shapeshift. So Shapeshift fits into the category of non-custodial exchange, although recently there have been some changes. Um, What it used to be is a place you would go to trade where there was no account set up. You didn't need a username. You didn't need a password. And as a result, there was no real know your customer um, anti-money laundering policy that was implemented at the user level. And so- um, For better or for worse, depending on your political leanings. (laughs) Well, the cool thing was their logo is a a little fox, right? And so there was a little fox. It was a widget. It was called the shifty button. And it was a widget that you could put on websites and what it would do, it would allow you to transform your tokens from one type into another. Um, so you could shapeshift, haha, uh-huh. <laughs> your ether into zero X or, you know, et cetera. And it was totally seamless too. That was it was. the beauty of it. There was no login. Like you said, it was just this widget, right? It's just a widget. Exactly. And all they did is they facilitated the trading. And this was by design. Um, it wasn't really intended for sophisticated investors who were trying to execute price-driven trades for the purpose of profiting. The Shapeshift Shifty button was really intended to help enable this sort of internet of value concept where you could seamlessly exchange one thing into another or shift it from one thing into another. Um, And so what was cool about it is that you weren't really spending a lot of time when you were using the Shifty button trying to figure out pricing or hunting in the market or trying to think about, oh, do I do market order, limit order, stop limit order? You would just get a rough price and they would manage the risk and execute the trade on the back end. But you would know that there was zero risk with your assets. There was no point at which you were at risk of losing your assets. Right. And this is where I think the idea of decentralized exchange was really born. People started looking at things like Shapeshift. People started looking at all of the problems on these other platforms where people were trading because there were no other choices, quite literally. And they said, wait a minute, 
can we do something better? So Jill, I know, so I worked with Ever and Shapeshift. I know you were working with Zero X and some of these DEXs. So why don't you talk us through why some of these DEXs were created and the problems they were trying to resolve? Yeah, absolutely. So Zero X came along in 2015 and launched sort of a more recent design of a decentralized exchange. In in many ways, I think it actually resembles what what Shapeshift was fulfilling for the market, but in a sort of native Ethereum way. And instead of relying on Shapeshift to facilitate the trades, you're just relying on a system of smart contracts, right? So one of the more controversial things about ZeroX here is that they fundraised using a token, um, just like everybody was back in you know 2016, 2017. Uh, that was all the rage, the ICO craze. So they fundraised using a token. Um, the idea being that they have created this really mission-critical market infrastructure, right, that if you're to update the software for, you need to have buy-in from all of the users, all of the traders, all of the market makers, speculators, investors, whatever it is, around how that update is going to be implemented. So Jill, all you're talking but all you're talking about here is governance by token. It's basically trying to change the social coordination model that happens in a disorganized markets and take it from being socially driven by people meeting, you know, at hotels or under buttonwood trees, and you're adding in a token so that people who have quote unquote skin in the game get to be part of the governance decisions. Indeed. That's exactly right. Now, Zero X has faced some issues. It, it's had a great track record in terms of creating a super developer-friendly ecosystem, um, in terms of getting relayers. Those, Jill, again, those... Give, me, give me the volume. Just give me the volume. I'm getting there. It has also struggled in certain regards. So one of the things that I worked on the Zero X team, I'll raise my hand and own this. Um, this is partly on me. The network volume is not high. The peak, I'm just looking at it right now. On April 8th, they had a little over a million in volume go across the entire ZeroX network. Uh, the volume for the last 24 hours as of recording this is close to $200,000 worth. So not not looking great, not super high, right? Now, I want to harken back, though, to some of the other market infrastructure we talked about, whether it's Instanet or whether it's uh, these bond trading exchanges and platforms. Any market infrastructure change takes a long time to catch on. Liquidity is always a huge issue. Why? Because you have a two-sided market problem, right? Right. You need buyers and sellers. You need price makers and price takers. And how you bootstrap that is a huge issue, not just for folks in the crypto space building exchange technology, but for anyone building exchange technology or new market infrastructure. Well, and I, but I look, I think again, here's the interesting thing about protocols like Zero X. So Zero X is really what they're trying to do is to codify um, that social consensus that happens around exchange infrastructure and turn it into a technology-driven process, right? I often like to say that our favorite thing to do in blockchain land and crypto land is to take social coordination problems and try to turn them into technical coordination problems. <laughs> Super fun. So effectively, like Zero X, literally that meeting you described at the start of this episode, that meeting under the buttonwood tree, 
Zero X is digitizing that. And arguably there's some value in that. But to your point, you need to have people building on top of it. And there are so many design choices that happen at that top layer. And I think a lot of times people don't really appreciate the complexities of interactions between layers of technology. Much like in the early days of high-frequency trading, people didn't appreciate the fact that just by moving your data center or your servers, you know, 2,000 miles north (laughs) to New Jersey, you could get way better price execution, right? You have all of these unintended consequences as a result of how these things get built out. And I think now what people are doing, um, there are projects getting built that are taking the Xerox protocol, but they're stripping out the token, which I think is really interesting. And so until these things are in the market, to your point, Jill, we're not going to know how people use them. We're not going to know what the problems are. All we can do is pontificate. And so to me, it's really cool that Zero X in the market. Um, when I was at Digital Currency Group, I worked with Radar Relay, which was one of the companies building an exchange platform on top of Zero X. And one of the interesting challenges they ran into, right, is you can build this new model for exchange. But the issue is still, if you're operating in the US, you're a US company that raised money from US venture investors, mm-hmm. you're going to have to do KYC AML. You're going to have to implement that, rules about who can be on your platform. a lot of what people are looking for in a DEX. But what it doesn't undo, and I'll maintain this, the non-custodial nature of it, right? You're not entrusting your coins to an exchange. Now, whether or not you need a token to do that, DDEX is an example of, of a project that stripped out the token, like you mentioned. We can debate that till the cows come home. I will all... I'll own, I am an owner of some of the zero X tokens. So if I sound like I am defending them, I am, but you know, I have skin in the game. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna apologize for that. Eat your, ha- <laughs> sure. eat your heart out, Nassim Taleb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, terrible. But there are also, what's cool about this is I think with the introduction of the zero X model, with the challenges that we're observing, um, people are starting to look at different ways to provide these benefits without this same construction, right? So look at AirSwap. That's one example. Um, there's also another example that's highly centralized, but I think is relevant within for institutions. It's the partnership between uh, BitGo, which is a custody kind of uh, crypto security company, working with Genesis Trading, which is the former of uh, my former employer's OTC desk. And what they introduced was basically. Um, the ability to trade while assets are in cold storage and all they're doing is netting, right? Mm -hmm. Is if you have like a known set of entities or an inside market, that's a bunch of institutional players who already have agreements with one another. All you do is just move zeros and ones in your internal database around what coins in cold storage belong to whom. Another, (laughs) So so another project that is sitting in a really interesting place, I think in the middle here between fully decentralized exchange, sort of centralized solutions that are still providing security guarantees around custody is Arwin, the Arwin protocol, which creates a secure channel between your wallet and a centralized Mm -hmm. exchange. They have a partnership with Qcoin exclusively Mm -hmm. for the purpose of your trades with that exchange. So no one but you is holding your keys or your coins, but you're getting all of the liquidity, the already bootstrapped liquidity of a centralized exchange. So that I think is super cool as well. Exactly. 
Arwen's an amazing project, and Sharon Goldberg, um, she was a professor at Boston College working with one of her grad students when they realized they had this crypto piece of cryptography, this applied cryptography right. that could be applied to this very specific problem. This is a great example to me. And this, again, is where, to me, the excitement around DEX and what's happening in the field of decentralized exchange, but also not even DEXs, I think just the innovation around crypto exchange models is we're finally at a point where we're starting to realize all of these problems that exist with the current exchange landscape in crypto land, right? And to be and honest, I think that there are lessons. There are certainly lessons for crypto to learn from Wall Street, but I think it goes the other way actually as well. We've talked a mm -hmm. lot about the DTCC and custody of uh, assets on Wall Street, how that's a mess too. I think that there's something really interesting here around this new model of what if we could all custody our own assets, self-custody, mm -hmm. while still being able to execute and settle trades. Well, to me, the really interesting idea is asking fundamental questions about the nature of markets and why they evolve in the first place. And this is where we get into a concept that you call single player mode, right? And I want to talk about this. Yeah. So Typically, um, when we have markets, the reason markets exist is there's this need to aggregate liquidity, to aggregate orders, to do that matching process, right? How are you going to find someone who wants to buy or sell or take the other side of this trade that you want to make? And so historically, what has happened is aggregation has been the tool to resolve that problem, right? It's basically creating a Tinder, a marketplace. Literally every internet business that has become successful over the last decade has been a marketplace. Place, where you take people who have something that other people want and are willing to pay for, and you put them together and you take a cut on the transaction fee. That's literally been the model for most business innovation forever, right? Totally. And so what I think is really cool is people are now asking, well, what if instead of taking the marketplace approach, we took a different approach? And this is where I'm going to hand it over to you, Jill. I think this is so cool, so interesting. Lots of problems with it. Still super young. But this idea of not creating a marketplace in the traditional way by aggregating both sides, but doing it in a different construction is so empowering. That's right. So shapeshift, I think, I tend to think of that as sort of the OG of single player mode. Now, of course, there was another player with shapeshift. It was shapeshift on the other side of your trade, taking on the risk mm -hmm. and then managing it, hedging it, whatever. But so there's a new kid on the block that has a new take on this single player mode version of trading. And that, of course, is Uniswap. So Uniswap is super interesting. What it does is it aggregates liquidity of different trading pairs into pools from market makers, right? So if you take, for example, an ETH die trading pair, if I'm a market maker, I can deposit tokens into that. I can deposit value into that and create a And let's sorry, let's just specify market maker doesn't mean you are stabilizing prices. Market maker means that when you quote a price, your your price is firm. You will make or take that price. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. So you're providing again the liquidity into that pool. Now, the smart contract in Uniswap, it holds a constant dot product of the ETH to die in this case, uh, ratio effectively, right? And so the market maker has set that ratio, has set that price. If I want to come along and trade against that contract and 
some market makers or even a single market makers provided liquidity and a price into that, then I can trade against that contract. And so there's none of this interaction with an order book, with a matching system, et cetera. In a way, it sort of reminds me of like what a dark pool is, um, although there were big differences as well. But you come along and you can trade against this again, pool of liquidity uh, in such a way that is really effectively, I think, brand new in terms of looking at any sort of market infrastructure or structure that's existed Mm -hmm. in the past. And Uniswap notably as well has done pretty well in terms of trading volumes and also liquidity. I, I don't have the volumes in front of me, but just looking at what's locked in it, they've got about $10 million worth of value locked or in in li- in liquidity in these contracts, which is not bad considering how brand new they are. Agreed. And I think, again, as we get close to the end of this episode, I do want to start to wrap it up. We've got to get ready for blockchain weeks, oh. <laughs> which is going to be just a total hot mess. Um, but look, what I think is really interesting here is it's important to your point, Jill. I find understanding the history of markets is really important part of understanding the present um, and also thinking about the future. And so I know you want to talk about one more topic, um, but I do think that as we design these experiments, right, they are just that they are experiments. We have thoughts on how changing certain parameters of how exchanging works may change the way that people interact with the act of exchanging. But these are experiments. They're not mature. They're small. They're half-baked. Like $10 million of trade volume seems substantial. It's nothing. Right. And so as we grow these systems, as we scale them, there will be trade offs that need to be made. So let's talk about your topic. I'm going to close out here with just one. We won't dive into this topic necessarily. Those who are interested can dive into it themselves. We'll link, link it in the show notes. But the thing that I wanted to talk about here, this little anecdote, it really comes back to these trade-offs and thinking through the different knobs you can turn as you're building market infrastructure and the impacts that will have on things like transparency and something I know that you've talked about here, the fairness of these markets. So one of the big red flags that people throw up around DEXs, sure, people talk about the liquidity problems, whatever. But the biggest thing that I think about and that I think a lot of people think about in terms of the architecture of these is actually front running. So we've talked a lot about front running on Wall Street in this episode, and we'll close out here with a little discussion around front running on DEXs because it turns out When you take exchange to a blockchain, there are new market participants that you have to think about and new market dynamics that you have to think about that you wouldn't have had to think about in these sort of legacy, more centralized exchange ecosystems. And specifically what I'm talking about is miners, because suddenly miners get to decide what what transactions enter into the block, how quickly they get confirmed to the to the blockchain. Uh, If you pay a high enough fee to a miner, uh, they might reorder the block, the transactions in the block, and give your trade priority, et cetera, et cetera. 
And there are all kinds of games that traders and arbitrage bots as well are playing and can play to make a profit off of these types of strategies using what what gets called minor extractable value. Yep. And if you're curious fact, for more someone on just this, pitched me someone just pitched me a similar thing. Um, it's a data scraping tool that scrapes all sorts of data across all crypto order books and gives you um, data to trade on, right? About what other people are doing in the market. There you go. It's basically it's basically taking, using data scraping strategy to start to come up with a trading strategy. But look, Jill, what the games traders play. But I, I just want to give a shout out to Phil Diane and, and his team who published, controversially, I think they, they called it Flash Boys 2.0. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that that's accurate. I'm also not sure that I would quote Michael Lewis on this. <laughs> not um, a great but- reference. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, the 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 subtitle of the paper front running transaction reordering and consensus instability indexes. Super interesting read, highly controversial again. Debate it in our tweets, debate it in our mentions, get all up in there. But, but what the, the trade-offs that we make in market But what it all comes down to, Jill, is this. If I am a professional trader, if I make my livelihood by knowing the nature and size and composition and temperament of markets and find inefficiencies in different parts of these markets – it doesn't matter what tools we have. It doesn't matter how quote unquote fair something is. It doesn't matter how decentralized it is. If that is my job, which for many people it is, we will continue to see people take these markets and bend them and shape them in ways that optimize their bottom line. It's how humans work. <laughs> and what I would say is if you if you have an issue with the way that the market is functioning now, And credit to all of the projects and all of the entrepreneurs that we've mentioned in this episode. Go and do what they've done. Go and do what IEX did, right? And create an alternative and find the users for whom that alternative is better. Well, and that's exactly it. This is not about changing markets overnight. It's going to take a long time. I've been here for five years. And in those five years, it feels like nothing has happened from an infrastructure perspective. But at the same time, everything has happened. There are a lot of things that we can learn from legacy capital markets as we make decisions about how to architect and build infrastructure. But there are also fundamentally new things that we'll be able to do that will fundamentally change, not just how our crypto markets operate, but potentially how the bond markets used to trade or the carbon markets I used to trade will operate in the future. And that's what's so fun here. You would better believe that every trader in the world, every high-frequency trading shop, every hedge fund is looking closely, keeping an eye on what's happening in crypto markets, because there could be profound implications for how we could reshape all markets after all, this is just a game, right? <laughs> and there is no panacea. Going back to our good friend Pangloss, who appeared in episode 17 about the media, um, there is no panacea to human behavior. There just isn't. This is part of what makes us so interesting and fun to study. <laughs> and if you want to see human behavior on display, we'll see you at Blockchain Week, folks. <laughs> hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Thanks again to our sponsors this week, Celsius Network. 
As a reminder, head over to Celsius and use the code GEARS when signing up to get free Bitcoin when you deposit more than $500. All right, gang, one final reminder to check out Consensus Coindesk's annual event. Here's what you can expect. You'll hear news and emerging trends from trailblazers like Niall Ferguson, Christine Moy, and yours truly. You can get involved in a two-day hackathon at Microsoft's Tech Center, where hundreds of developers will compete for $30,000 in cash prizes. And you can network with developers, founders, regulators, investors, and more. And us. So get your tickets today, since last year's event sold out. Just go to consensus2019.com and don't forget to use Gears 300 so they know we sent you. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.